You're listening to a sermon from Covenant Presbyterian Church in Cochrane, Alberta. If you'd like more information about our church, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.covenantpresbyterian.ca. It's good to see everyone here today. Uh, This morning we're going to be continuing on in Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. Now last week, uh, Pastor Chris walked us through verses 1 to 15, and today we're going to be going through verses 16 to 26. Now, just to do a quick recap from uh, where we're at last week, or rather, um, just kind of be a a helpful reminder as this past week was, shall we say, rather eventful as far as the happenings in Canada, particularly um, protests and politics and everything else. So, in verses 1 to 15, we saw that Jesus was passing from Judea to Galilee, and he passed through Samaria. Now, the Samaritans were those who hailed uh, from partial... Jewish descent, and were seen as half-reason foreigners by the Jews in Jesus' day. Now, after the Assyrians first of all conquered uh, Israel in 722 BC, they deported many Jews, and uh, in the region of Samaria, they tried to also settle a bunch of foreigners. So a bunch of people who, uh, from other lands who belonged to other gods. This forced many of the remaining Jews to have to intermarry over time, and for the Jews, when they eventually returned, they viewed them as half-breeds and betrayers of Yahweh. They viewed those those who didn't remain faithful to uh, their covenant God. So much so that the rabbis in Jesus' time even taught that a Samaritan woman was ceremonially unclean for her entire life. That there was no chance for her to, to basically be reunited with uh, the covenant God of Israel. That she would forever remain separated from him. Just to kind of give you an idea of uh, how the Jewish people of Jesus' day view the Samaritans. So how shocking would have been for the original Jewish audience, the original Jewish audience that John was addressing his letter to, for them uh, to hear that Jesus sat down and asked a Jewish, uh, sorry, a Samaritan woman for a drink of water. And what Jesus says to the woman in the first part of the conversation is that he is the Savior who gives the living water or salvation to both those who, on outward appearances, are saints like Nicodemus in chapter 3 with his with Jesus' conversation to Nicodemus, when he says to him, you might be the most morally upstanding, you might be kind of the religious hero or the teacher of the day, but you still too need to be uh, born again. That There's something lacking within you that you can't fulfill to make yourself right with God. Uh, so that both the person on the outside looks like a saint, but also the sinner and the social outcast, like the Samaritan woman here, that she also is in need of Jesus. And today... We want to look at what Jesus has to say next, right? Today we're going to see how Jesus is going to aim at how we worship and also the way we tend to divide when we worship. To illustrate this, I just want to show a quick picture of an actual sign uh, that was posted at the temple in Jesus' day. Uh, these here were kind of some of the large signs that told uh, everyone who was non-Jewish not to go past that part of, uh, of the temple, which was called the Court of the Gentiles. So if we remember back to chapter 2, when Jesus cleanses the temple, he ends up driving everybody out. Uh, this would have been that area, right? And these signs were to say that all of you who are, uh, who are not Jews, all of you who are Gentiles, you can't come closer to this. And uh, what was written on this was, whoever is caught will be responsible for his own ensuing death, right? These were signs warning you, if you go past this, you're responsible for your own death. 
Just to make sure that this message was loud and clear, this was written in both Greek and Latin, and for extra emphasis, the letters themselves were actually painted red. Now, these particular um, remnants of it, the one on the left that you see, that's actually the full sign. Uh, it resides today in a uh, museum in Istanbul. And uh, the one on the right, I believe, also resides in uh, modern-day Turkey. But they're, they're both from the Temple Mount. These are both actual signs that would have been in existence in Jesus' day. And they were, as a further reminder, that there was a separation based upon worship. That uh, for those of you who were not Jewish, that you didn't get to come close to God. You didn't actually get to come and be near Yahweh. For another example, in... Uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, Paul says that a mark of their immaturity is the way that they divided based upon their preference of uh, their favorite leaders. Now, to us that can keep, seem kind of silly, right? It's kind of, you're going to divide uh, churches and everything else based upon who, you, who is your favorite preacher. Um, but to be honest, we can be kind of guilty of it too, right? You get the camps of the guys who, uh, who really like MacArthur. You have the camps of the guys who really like Sproul and... Uh, even though they're both friends themselves, sometimes the people within the separate camps don't actually mix very well. And as I mentioned, uh, we can see from human history, but let, let alone post-Reformation church history uh, to today, how we can be guilty of dividing, sometimes rightly and sometimes wrongly, based upon uh, our likes, preferences, or how we decide to worship. So the big idea for today is that Jesus is the coming Messiah who knows our true state, but will still offer us living water and will lead us into right worship of the Father and thereby making a way for our religious hostilities towards one another to come to an end. To help us see this, I kind of want to look at three points in this passage. Or I want to bring out three things from the passage today. The first is that Jesus is the true prophet who offers us living water even though he knows our past. The second is that Jesus will redefine how we are to worship God in light of God's nature and the promises God made to his covenant people. And the third point is that Jesus is the foretold prophet who will make a way to unite those divided uh, by faith or those divided by ethnicity as well. So that, uh, let's read the passage and then have a quick word of prayer. So please open to uh, John chapter 4, verses 16 to 26. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. For God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. 
Jesus said to her, I speak to you, am he. So with that, let's just open a quick uh, word of prayer. Oh Lord, thank you that we can come gather this morning and uh, freely open your word. Thank you that we have such an abundance of your word that uh, we can for practically read our Bibles at almost any moment we choose to. Lord, help us to, uh, to not take that lightly, but rather help us to, to value your word and to uh, treat it with the proper esteem. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would speak to us through your word and help us to better understand it. Lord, grant us ears to hear what you'd have us to say. And I ask that you'd help me to communicate the precious truths of your word. And it is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So the first thing that we see when we read verse 16 is an apparent abrupt change of subject uh, by Jesus. And uh, we see that he goes from her asking for water that only Jesus can give in verse 15 to now Jesus asking her to go and get her husband. Uh, But when we look at this and what's going on, it might seem quite strange for transition at the outset, but it really isn't. Because what we see in verse 1 to 15 is that this woman has already misunderstood who Jesus is and what he has had to offer to her. And by this turn in the dialogue, Jesus indicating that she's also misunderstood the true dimension of her own need or the true nature of why she needs the living water that only Christ can give her. And by displaying his knowledge of her morally messy past, something that she would have understood to be deeply shameful, something that would have been... um, uh, something that would have embarrassed her truly. Jesus moving on from saying that she needs the living water that only he can apply to her situation uh, of why to the why in which she needs it. This is in order to help her see the nature of the gift he is offering, but also her need of the gift. So far, this being, uh, this from being a strange turn in the conversation, this is where and how we see how Jesus is going to help her better see what he is offering her by showing her her need of Christ's salvation. What Jesus is asking her about would have probably been the most sensitive subject that he could have. Uh, It would have doubtless been uh, the reason why she was getting water in the middle of the day, why she was there at noon in the heat of the day, rather than as was the common practice for women to go first thing in the morning or in the evening when it was the cool of the day. By being here at noon, uh, it means that what she's trying to do is she's trying to avoid others. She recognizes that there's shame in her life and she just wants to be away from everybody else to avoid their stares, to avoid kind of their, their whispers and murmurs. Uh, and for good reason. I'm sure that to us this might look kind of uh, scandalous, right? Five husbands, even by today's standards, that's quite a few. Uh, even if we look at you know, some of the celebrities in Hollywood, we would say they're switching a little fast. Uh, but... By Jesus' standards, this would have been almost unthinkable, right? Uh, Rabbis at the time, they would have taught that your maximum is like three marriages and that's it. Uh, And that the odds of all five of her husbands dying is pretty low. So most likely there's been several divorces involved. And uh, that by saying that the man who she currently is living with isn't her husband, is that she's admitting that she's essentially exchanging um, sex for rent kind of like a live-in maid and hooker kind of rolled into one. This is something that no one uh, today would want to admit to, let alone in Jesus' day. This would have been the, the ultimate shame. This would have been the ultimate uh, way of her saying that she's degraded herself and that she's uh, 
fallen away from the way that would have been the moral expectation. And as I mentioned, what Jesus is doing here is that he's going to apply what the, what the living water he has offered, offered her is for so that she can understand what, what her need of it is for. That the living water he offered her isn't just that she wouldn't be thirsty anymore, but rather that God is able to cleanse her from the moral outrage of her life and give her eternal life in the presence of a loving Heavenly Father when all she would have known by this point is brokenness and rejection. That the woman who was the outcast in the village, that the woman who was the one who everybody kind of turns their back on, the one who, who wants to avoid everybody else uh, because of her situation, now Christ is offering her the water that, to cleanse her, but also eternal life so that she can uh, live life in the, in the presence of, of her uh, loving Heavenly Father. And her response is essentially, there's more than meets the eye, right? When she ends up saying, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She goes, okay, there's more to you than kind of what I'm expecting. There's more going on here than what I see. And when she calls Jesus a prophet, uh, there's kind of a lot to unpack there. And we kind of will circle back around to it uh, because on the, on the surface of it, in our English translations, uh, it doesn't quite do it justice. But we'll get back to that. Uh, which kind of brings us to our next point which is that Jesus will redefine how we are to worship God in light of God's nature and the promises God made to his covenant people. And we're going to see uh, this by taking a look at verses 20 to 24. In which case, I just want to read it again. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Once again, it seems like there's a bit of a sudden uh, change of subject. But I think this is... Uh, very understandable because what she's doing, she, she's just been exposed. She's kind of had her most uh, shameful past revealed to her. And I think it, it would kind of make sense for her to kind of want to change the subject, right? Because for us, how often is that when, uh, for example, something that we've done wrong ends up getting exposed, that we just want to change the subject, right? We just kind of want to uh, pull the e-brake, get out of there. We want to switch things up, move on the conversation. And I think that's uh, what she's doing as well. Right? She's changing the subject from her own shame to something that uh, she'd be able to ask a prophet or someone who has um, some divine knowledge, some divine insight uh, as to what's the central division point between Jews and Samaritans. And to help us understand this, I just want to take a moment uh, to see what's at stake in the conflict and how both sides understood this, right? What was the difference between the Samaritans and the Jews as far as this whole conflict between worshiping on the mountain versus Jerusalem? Uh, And the Jewish people in Jesus' day, uh, with the exception of the Sadducees, held that the whole Old Testament was from God. This led them to believe that they were called to worship uh, at Jerusalem where God commanded the temple to be built, right? Uh, That's where God said, this is where you to build it. Uh, This was the capital. This was, uh, if you look at the Psalms, there's many psalms of ascent in which the people are going up to Jerusalem. Uh, Now, the Samaritans, like the Sadducees, 
they kind of held that only the first five books of the Bible were from God and actually authoritative. This led them to conclude that they were to worship at Mount Gerizim, uh, which is the mountain that's being referred to in this passage. One reason that they thought this was because that's where Abraham and Jacob both built altars to God in the book of Genesis. Hence why the Samaritan uses the phrase, our fathers, right? It's a reference back to, okay, uh, the patriarchs, this is where they built altars, so therefore this is where we ought to worship. Then in 400 BC, the Samaritans even built a temple to perform sacrifices there. And that temple was destroyed in the second century, but to Jesus' day, they still worshiped at Mount Gerizim. If you kind of want to know a little bit more, um, please let me know. I can kind of fill you in with a, a lot more of kind of the, the details of it, but just for the sake of continuity, uh, I just want to give you a little bit of a background. But what both sides thought was at stake is how you are to rightly worship, right? The Jews thought that in light of the entire Old Testament canon, they were to worship in Jerusalem. The Samaritans thought that in light of only the Pentateuch or the first five books, that they were to worship on Mount Gerizim. So the question was, how do we truly worship God? Uh, and Jesus answers her question, and, but first he's going to address her by showing her some respect and value, right? In English, the word woman, which is Jesus' first response, he says, uh, woman, believe me. Uh, woman can seem kind of cold and distant to us, but the Greek word that's used here, gynea, is actually the same word that Jesus uses in chapter 2, verses 4, to actually refer to his mother, right? So this is actually, uh, this would be more like uh, someone from the, the deep south in the U.S. saying, Madam. This was meant uh, to show, like, a sign of respect. So Jesus is going to start off by showing respect to this woman who probably has, has been shown no respect uh, for quite some time in her life. Then Jesus is going to move on. He's going to say, believe me. And... By saying this, he's saying, trust me or take it on my authority. So Jesus is saying that his answer is coming on the basis of his own authority, not on the basis of uh, just what she had thought. So Jesus is saying that this is on my, my teaching authority as you recognize, as someone who is more than just a, a mere person, but as, uh, as the prophet. And Jesus' response to the woman in, chapters, sorry, in verses 21 to 24 are going to come to us in three parts. First, in verse 21, when he says that they understand, uh, the way they understand worship was soon going to become outdated and obsolete. The idea that you had to go to a special location in order to meet with God, the whole basis for a temple, or the whole way that the ancient, uh, the ancient Near East understood, or basically everybody at that time thought that um, God or the gods were located at a special location, so you had to go there uh, to worship them. That what Jesus is saying, that's outdated, that's going to be done away with. Uh, because Yahweh, the true God, that he's not just God in a particular location, but he's God over everything. And there was going to be no more need for a temple. So that no longer would they have to come to a certain geographical location to worship God, and that no longer would one group have an exclusive right to draw near to God. That no longer, based on your geography, would he be able to come near to God. But now this is going to be expanded out to all people. And this levels the playing field for all people to come near and to worship Yahweh, the one true God. Second, in verse 22, Jesus is going to, is going to say that the Samaritan, uh, that salvation is going to come through God's fulfillment of his promises to his covenant people in the Old Testament. And that the Samaritans, that they're outside of the stream of God's revelation. That, uh, that the Samaritans' worship 
can't be characterized as being on the basis of, uh, of truth. And by contrast with Jesus saying that the Jews stand within the stream of God's revelation, that they know the one who they worship. Or that it is to the Jewish people that God has revealed himself uh, prior to that, therefore. And that God is going to fulfill his promises to the Jewish patriarchs and that God will bring his Messiah through the Jews. That the Samaritans, that he's saying essentially, you're kind of barking up the wrong tree, right? He's thoroughly siding uh, with at the right location for the temple prior to this uh, was Jerusalem, but that their whole expectation, that that was going to be done away with. That because, um, and the third point is that Jesus is going to explain how this is not uh, how this old order of the temple is going to be obsolete by explaining the nature of true worship. That because God is spirit, there's, there's no uh, spatial or temporal component to him. You don't have to come to a certain place where God is, but rather that God is, uh, is everywhere. Uh, that it doesn't depend upon where you go. But rather that our worship is enabled by God. Therefore, in order to worship God, we need the help of God's spirit. And for us as readers of John's gospel, we can kind of see how this theme has been building. Earlier on in uh, John chapter 3, in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, we see that Jesus says that even though Nicodemus was, uh, was the teacher of, of Israel, that even though he had this high elevated position, that everybody looked to him for spiritual insight, that he was still missing something, that he still needed to be born of the Spirit. That our worship must be uh, driven by the Spirit, that our worship must be uh, brought about uh, by God's changing, uh, changing who we are, that the goal here isn't dead orthodoxy, that the goal here isn't just that we're going to go come about doing, uh, doing the same kind of going through the motions. That for us as Presbyterians, it isn't just about us uh, coming here and just reciting a liturgy over and over again. For, the, uh, for us here within the Presbyterian context, that looks like for us, our worship is meant to be guided by it's meant to be guided uh, by God. That it's we don't just come together, we, we just go through the motion, but rather that we're supposed to actually participate within it. That our worshiping is meant to be done, uh, enabled by God. It's meant to be exuberant, it's meant to be us expressing who we are in response to who God is. Um, and that by saying that it's in spirit and in truth. It actually ends up placing quite the high expectation on us. Because the prepositional phrase in the Greek that's used by in doesn't just apply to one, but applies to both. So not only is, is our, our very worship enabled by God, because God um, renews us by his spirit, but rather it's also in truth. So we're called to worship in the way that God has called us to worship. Uh, and we can see examples in, in the Bible of where that hasn't been followed and how that's gone very, very wrong. One of the primary examples of this would be, for example, in Leviticus 10, when uh, the priests Nadab and Abihu, when they decide, you know what, God called us to worship in this particular way, but we're going to do it slightly different. We're not going to worship in the way that God called us to, and uh, end up with them um, um, dying. If you want a New Testament example, we can look at, for example, 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is giving his advice around what the Lord's Supper is to look like. And he ends up saying, there's many of you who take this in an unworthy manner. There's many of you who treat this so glibly. There's many of you who are participating in this in an unworthy manner. So much so that Paul says, 
that some of you are sick and that some of you have even died. Right? So the worship of God isn't something that's meant to just be a light thing to be trifled with. We're called to worship God um, in the way that he has called us to. And um, our worship is empowered by God to worship God in the way that God has called us to. Um, so what we've seen here is that, first of all, that Jesus is the prophet who, uh, who knows our past. And even the light of that still gives us the living water. That Jesus is he's going to make the old ways of worship, where we have to go to this temple, where we have to go to the central location, that that's going to be done away with. Because now we're called to worship God in light of who he is. That because God is spirit, we are called to worship him in spirit and in truth. And third, that Jesus is the foretold prophet who will make a way to unite those divided by faith. And for this, uh, we just kind of want to take a look at verses 25 and 26. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, when I mentioned back in verse 19, her, the way that she says uh, that you're a prophet and the way that our English translations don't really do that justice is first of all, because of the Greek syntax, um, it, it suggests more that rather than saying you are a prophet, it's meant to say that you are the prophet, right? So in her words, she's not saying that you are a prophet, but you are the prophet. Now, this to us is, um, kind of sounds like, okay, you are the coming prophet. But if we take a look at the way that the Samaritans would have understood this, because they only had the first five books of the Bible, their understanding uh, of this is in light of Deuteronomy 18 and Deuteronomy 34, where their understanding of the coming Messiah, the, uh, as she calls here, the, the Messiah, or the Greek word there is just for the anointed one, that this isn't going to be the same concept as what the Jews had, that it would be a, a, a coming prophet as someone who in Deuteronomy 18, as it says, that he would be greater than Moses. And from Deuteronomy 34, they thought there's only one more, one more prophet coming. And that this prophet, that his role, that he'd have a teaching role, that he'd be uh, the one who would uh, explain everything to them versus the Jewish understanding, which was that he was going to be uh, a coming king, that he was going to be the, the one who would be the conquering triumphant king. So by her saying this, uh, she's understanding that uh, Jesus is the one who fulfills the Samaritan's expectation. Jesus is the one who is going to help them to see things in the way that uh, they are meant to be. That he's going to be the ultimate revealer or teacher. And that he's the one who's, who's going to come in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. Um, now, by Jesus saying that I who speak to you, that I am he, he's saying that he's the one who's, who's going to be that prophet. That he's the one who's going to um, um, essentially reveal the, the true way of worship. He's the one who's going to, going to unite them. So if we go back to uh, this picture here, right? Uh, if we take a look at the <laughs> that Jesus says, Bye-bye. That Jesus, as, uh, as, as the coming prophet, the true prophet that's meant to be fulfilling, uh, it's that 
He's going to going to unite the people in true worship. That no longer is it is it meant to be a separation. That no longer is there. Okay, you're Samaritan and you're Jewish. Because what Jesus said, Jesus in offering living water uh, to the Samaritan, it, it's a he's fulfilling what the promise of the Old Testament was. That this that God's salvation was going to come through the Jews, but it wasn't going to exist solely for a particular ethnic group, but rather this was meant to go to all people. And uh, I think one way of kind of understanding this is the way that Paul will describe this in Ephesians 2, where in uh, verses 11 to 22, uh, he says that us who are Gentiles, that we're separated, uh, he's going to use a lot of temple language here, hence why I have these images of, uh, of the signs of warning from the temple. That what once was to separate them, that, that wall, uh, Paul's going to use uh, alienation from the commonwealth, uh, strangers to the covenant, uh, and ha- for us having no hope that uh, Christ, he's going to make out of, out of uh, two, one, that in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility was going to be uh, taken away, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. That Jesus as the coming prophet, by showing us what true worship is going to look like, and the fact that he was going to be the one who was going to uh, wash us with the living waters and uh, give us eternal life. That now that the, that division is gone, that now we are uh, we're able to come to him as one new people. Which ironically is, is the hope of Revelation chapter 5. When we see from every nation, tribe, and tongue, from uh, every single people group on the planet, that now there's going to be one new people. One people who's going to worship, uh, worship God. That uh, because of who Christ is, that now we're able to, to come to him as one. And this is kind of in direct contra- contradiction to certain diabolical ideologies going around today that try to separate people on the basis of, of their background, of uh, things that had gone on in people's past. What Jesus is saying here is that he's the one who's going to, uh, who's going to redeem us, that he's the one who, who separates that hostility, that now we are called to be one people uh, in Christ. Uh, so just to recap, um, Jesus is the true prophet who offers us living water, despite who we are, despite how worthy or unworthy we might seem to others, that he's going to be the one who, uh, who cleanses and redeems uh, both uh, the Boy Scout and the ultimate scoundrels. That that offer is to all, irregardless of your background. And that by saying he's the one who's going to lead us into true worship of the Father, but that means that no longer is, is the separation between, for example, um, Jew and Samaritan. That no longer is uh, the need to go to, to a particular location valid. But now, because God is spirit, we're able to worship him from any location, but we're called to worship him in the way that he has called us to worship him. And third, that uh, Jesus, as the true prophet, that he's able to bring an end to, to the hostility that we have uh, between us on the, on the different bases of worship, because he leads us in what the true worship is to look like. So with that, let's uh, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, giving it to us uh, that we can have it so freely. Dear Lord, help us to see you as our ultimate hope, as the one who cleanses us, the one who redeems us, but also, Lord, as the one who, uh, who makes a way for us to be united to one another as uh, 
as a way for our hostilities on a religious basis to, to be put aside because we're called to worship in and through you, that we're called to worship um, by your spirit and that we're called to worship you in truth in the way that you have called us to worship you. And so, dear Lord, um, pray that as we, as we go through this week, that you'd help us to, to think on this text, to meditate on this text. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.